Well, good morning. Man, that was incredible. I know. Uh, great job, Christopher and Kylie. Um, man, yeah, let's... That's something else to get up here and belt out worship. Um, um, we're not going to have slides, <laughs> so we had a bit of technical problems. We got, we got, uh, we got slides for the music, which I, uh, the worship, so I think that was the important part. Um, so if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, just raise your hand. Gene's got a bunch of Bibles in the back. Go ahead and do that now as I uh, just raise your hand and he'll, he'll hand them out. Otherwise, feel free to jump online and go to esv.org if you want. And, yeah, excuse me, sir? Uh, if you guys, if you want one, you can certainly have one. No, you sure? Oh. You can't, <laughs> bro, Ryan. <laughs> you can't start out that way. <laughs> You're great. Uh, all right. So we, um, and there are Bibles scattered around. So if you want to grab one too, you can do that. Um, awesome. Well, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you. Um, please don't leave without me being able to say hi to you. I know some of you guys came uh, after uh, church in the park and stuff like that, so welcome. I'm glad you guys uh, came by. And um, man, it's a packed house, so I think this is <laughs> this is it. Here, write down the number because um, we need uh, more chairs at our disposal, or at least have them set out somewhere. So, um, so that's awesome. If somebody comes in and needs to sit right by you, you know, please scoot over or whatever. Charles, great to have you here from Costa Rica. So one of, one of the missionaries down in Costa Rica, and Spencer, too, you're somewhere here as well. Um, but um, awesome, just great seeing uh, some familiar faces. So you guys should have gotten one of these things when you came in. And we've got one behind us, right? Um, you know, it, it's interesting, right? Because this is like so conventional. Like it, it's, it doesn't, I mean... And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, but like we see this symbol so frequently, it kind of maybe has lost its its meaning, right? Like I mean, it. it and, and so today we're going to kind of go through like what this means, and and it, it's Easter, right? And so people come to church and they're like, I know the story. All right, well that's good. <laughs> you guys know the whole story, right? Um, Maybe you do. Maybe you don't know the story. Maybe you've never heard it before. Um, but I, I want us to, to look at this as not just a cross. It's not just something that people put uh, tattoos or uh, bumper stickers or, right? It, it's, it, it almost becomes just something that just we just see around. It's almost like a branding or it's a symbol Right? It's just a logo, if you will. Like, if you put one of these on your car, you know, you're like, oh, they're a Christian, right? Um, but it means so much more than that. And we just sang three songs that, that lead into this of, of how much it means. It's, it's not just um, about Jesus dying on the cross. It's not. It's a lot more. The, the, this represents something very clearly in the uh, records of history that God is for us. That's, that's, first and foremost, that's what this should mean to us. It means that God is for us. 
and that he intervened in the history of humanity. Well, he started humanity, and then he intervened in it to rescue us. Now, the question, though, is what did he rescue us from? Before we get into that, I want you to think about it. We're going to step through it, but let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for you. Thank you for being for us. Thank you for loving us profoundly. And we pray, Father, that this morning as we read through your word, that that you would speak to us, that you would change our hearts, that you would align our affections with yours, and that we would just see how deeply and completely and fully you offer to rescue us. You affected it. You made it happen. God, we have no other recourse. And so we trust in you. And I pray that this morning, as we read your word, that you would just change lives like you promised to do, that you would open ears and open eyes and help us to see you for who you are. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, kindergarten through fifth graders are in here, so it's totally cool. They can, they can, uh, don't, don't be disturbed. I, I will, I will, I will step back from challenging them in any way, um, like I've done in the past, but um, it's okay if they're noisy. We're obviously a pretty casual church, so um, it's totally cool. So usually, the parents are more concerned about the kids than the kids are concerned, and that's okay. Um, so just relax. It's okay, and uh, we'll go through it. So we say Happy Easter. I feel like that just, well, we also say he is risen, right? And then we respond, if you're in the South, uh, somebody says he is risen. Leslie tested me on this this morning. I felt like it was a quiz to see if I responded correctly. And then I respond, he's risen indeed, right? And, and if you've grown up in the South or in the church, like, like that is that apparently is the way that you say that. I come from the West Coast, um, and you just say, Happy Easter, maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe. But happy, like, what a, what a dumb word, right? Like, it's just, it's kind of, it's like, uh, it, it is anticlimactic, Ryan. Um, so this is going to be good. See, la- <laughs> so, so last week at Church in the Park, you know, Ryan and I, different Ryan, ironically enough, uh, the pastor at Salvation Church and I were like, man, we should like interrupt each other and we should like clarify and do stuff and uh, kind of do this whole thing. But um, I guess we saved it for this week. Um, I just teasing. Um, but yeah, it is anticlimactic. That's the word I was looking for. It, it, it's so, it's just boring. And I think that's part of why we just see this. It's just, it's a cross and it's just whatever. Okay, you know, I, yeah, no, I know, I know Jesus died for my sins. Um, I've said it, I could say it. But what does it mean? What does it really mean? There's three things that God rescued us from. Three things. Satan, sin, and death. That's it. That's, that's the end of the sermon, okay? I'm like, that is what we're gonna look at this morning. Now, here's, here's the ironic part. Let's think real quick about how the world solves those three problems. Because you have problems. We all have problems, right? We have circumstances in our lives that cause us pain and frustration, right? Like, 
We lose our jobs. We have, you know, financial problems. We have marriage problems, relationships. We have problems with our kids. We have, right? We got, we, we got, a, we got a lot of problems. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I was going to use a slogan, but it's not appropriate. So, um, <laughs> uh, this is like the heckler in the crowd. This is fantastic. Nicole, don't shake your head. This is great. This is great. I love it. I love it. So, um, <sighs> I got 99 problems. All right. Um, so we've got a ton of problems, right? And all the adults laugh. Okay. Um, but they just deal with our circumstances. They don't deal with the real root of our problems. So let's think about this. Satan. How does the world solve the problem of Satan? They relegate him to folklore of ancient and ignorant people. They go, I'm, I'm pretending like that enemy doesn't even exist anymore because that's silly. Okay, that, that's step one of how the world solves that problem. The second one, sin. How does the world solve the sin problem? They redefine it. <laughs> right? They, they just change. They go, well, that's not sin. That's, that's, just, that's just how you feel or that's just, that's just how you're, you're you know, uh, what you're thinking right now. There's circumstances that have caused you to react that way. That's just part of who you are. That's your, um, ah, what's it called? <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> What's the coding thing? Um, no, not that one. No, the, the thing that you go online and you get a, a, a enneagram, thank you, or whatever that is, uh, right? And you go, well, it's just who I am. I can't help it that I get so angry at my kids. It's just it's a number. It's, I'm, I'm, psychi- psychologists have programmed me, like, like, they haven't programmed me. They have told me that I'm programmed this way, and therefore it's not a sin problem, it's just who I am. And so we just go, hey, well, you know, that's, that's how we solve sin. And what about death? We're trying. Oh, we're trying. Science has gone from discovering who God is to trying to prolong life. Is that, is that fair to say? And I'm not saying that's a bad venture. Like, I'm, I'm all for it, right? Our, our average lifespan went from 40 to, like, 80. So, yay, us, right? But... But the reality is, is that we're always trying to prolong life and stay alive a little bit longer, just grasp onto another year. I was out in the sun yesterday, and uh, my wife's like, you're going to get skin cancer. And I'm like, well, I'm going to die anyway, <laughs> again. Um, right? So, so it's like, what, what do you, right? And I'm, I'm not trying to be, I mean, there's some seriousness to that, right? But the world has no solutions for Satan, sin, or death. They don't. Scripture does. God does. That's what this cross is about. This cross represents Jesus conquering Satan. It represents Jesus conquering sin in your life. And it means Jesus conquers death. Now, here's the problem. Satan still exists. You're still going to sin, and you're definitely going to die. So then, what was the point of that? You see, and so as we dive through this, we're going to see that that he conquers Satan. There is a conquering currently, and there is a future, final, full conquering that's going to happen. Okay? And same with sin. Like, and if you've walked in here thinking you're going to walk out like a more moral person, you're, you just walked into the, to the, the lion's den of filth and sin, right? Because we all sin. We don't want to sin, hopefully, right? But we will. 
So it's not that, that God's going to get rid of all sin in our lives. I mean, he's going to refine us and make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, but we're still going to sin. You're still going to be offended. You're still going to offend other people. But he changes what the effects of that sin are in our lives. In death, he promises us new life. You see, when we die, we have hope in a new life. We have hope because why? Because Jesus conquered death. See, that's why we sing he's risen. That's why we sing he's alive. He's alive over and over and over again because we need that reminder to ourselves. So that's what we're going to dive into this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53, an unconventional place to do an Easter message. But it's going to be pretty appropriate as we step through those three victories. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. As we're walking through this, that Jesus gained victory over Satan's sin and death. That was the whole point. That was why he was born. That is why he existed here on, in this earth, right? To show us the way. That's why he has ascended and gone back to the Father. That is why we celebrate Easter. That's why we say, happy Easter, okay? All right, so let me read through this. Isaiah 53. We're going to read through the whole thing, and then we're back up. All right, Isaiah 53. This is called the suffering servant. This is a prophecy. This is 700 years before Jesus was born, okay? So you got you to gotta realize this. This is Isaiah saying what is going to happen. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, we're going to start in verse 2. So it starts out, and it says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. He says that he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. It says that we esteemed him not. So this is like the very first part of this. Oh, by the way, there is so much in Isaiah 53. I would encourage you, like, go home, Google it, there, because there's so many pieces and parts in that that we go, 700 years later, Jesus did exactly that. And, and some of them, right, he, he was just born into that, into that uh, being acquainted with grief and, and just a man that's rejected by, by the world, right? He was, he was born in a very innocuous, ordinary, maybe even subordinary way, right? And so we, we look to this and we go, this was, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who fulfilled this. And we see that we esteemed him not. I, I just, this dawned on me like two days ago. So here's this miraculous story, right? Angels, wait, we celebrate this at Christmas. We tell the story, angels and prophecies and fulfillment, and everybody's like, oh, this is amazing. Virgin Mary has a child. And then what? Nothing. <laughs> like, nobody's following him. Nobody's, like, inquiring. Nobody's writing down the story. He's just, like, off the grid. And then he pops up when he's 12, and he's, like, in Jerusalem for a second, and there's, like, some story about him getting lost. And then he's quiet again. And then he shows up on the scene, 30 years old. Obviously, nobody esteemed him. Obviously, nobody was like, this is certainly the Messiah. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. We don't have a record of what happened during that time. But, but it, suffice it to say, the world wasn't thinking, Jesus, hey, Mary, Joseph, make sure you raise him upright because, I mean, he's going to be the Savior, so... Right? Like these conversations didn't happen as far as we know. The world didn't care. The world didn't think that, he, that those miracles at his birth were of any significance one way or another. And they just happily moved on. So if you're in here right now and you're thinking, well, I've heard the story of Jesus. I've heard about his resurrection. Yeah, sounds miraculous. Well, you're in good company because there's a lot of people that thought the same thing and they just moved on with their lives. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll happen. Maybe Jesus is going to come back while you're still alive. Maybe. But let me, let me just argue that, that he has blessings for us now. I don't mean monetary blessings. He wants to conquer Satan, sin, and death in your life. And I'll, I'll tell you where that is going to come uh, to be noticeable. My words aren't coming to me very well this morning. So here's the amazing thing. When Jesus does come into the scene, when Jesus does start his ministry at the age of 30, right, we read in Luke chapter 22, and you can just write this. I won't spend a long time here. But in Luke 22, he says, Jesus says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Where did we just read that? Isaiah 53. Jesus goes, that, that Isaiah 53 suffering servant, that's me. He's like, that is me. And it says, and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me 
has its fulfillment. You see, Jesus declares that Isaiah 53 is about him. And, and we see that he fulfills every single part of it. If you turn over just two chapters later in uh, Luke chapter 24, this is after Jesus has rose from the grave. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, then he said to them, these are my, are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, that's what, so Jesus is going, the whole plan was for me to be counted with the transgressors. I, in other words, I'm going to be considered a criminal. And he says, and then as, after he rises from the grave, he goes, this is what I told you. I told you that everything in Isaiah 53 was going to come true for me. Because Isaiah 53 points to me. Now, last week, if you guys remember, we looked at Isaiah 43, right? And we saw that God was talking about how he was going to do a new thing. In fact, he says, don't look at the old stuff I've, I've done. I mean, he even talks about like, yeah, I parted the seas. Big deal. Well, I mean, we look at that and we're like, oh, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, you parted the Red Sea. It's, 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 it's a pretty good feat, God. Why don't you want us to remember that? Because he goes, what did he do? He saved them from the Egyptians. So? He saved them from slavery. So? Is that Satan's sin or death? God's like, that's not. He's like, why, why are you concerned with, with where you're working or where you're living or where you're, right? Like, why are you concerned about your circumstances? He's like, I'm going to do something new that's going to conquer things that you can't even dream of me conquering. He's like, I'm going to do a new thing. Stop thinking about me solving, you know, your, your financial woes, you know, right? And I mean, and this is how we think, right? Like, we want somebody to come into the scene. We would never write Isaiah 53. Would you guys agree? Like, if you were to write, like, how do you want God to come back? <laughs> we would go, well, he'd be seven feet tall and about 350 pounds. He'd speak well. He'd be pretty good looking, probably. He'd dress well. He would have some formidable personality. He would conquer, and he would, and he would rule, and he would reign in power and strength and prestige. Like, this is, these are the people that we like on the movies, <laughs> isn't it? And that's what we want, and in our mind, that's what we shape the Savior to be. And all the while, we're sitting here looking at this in Isaiah, four, in Isaiah 43, and he's going, I'm going to do something totally new. I'm not going to come like that. Because my goal is not to solve your circumstances. My goal is to declare victory over Satan, sin, and death. Because you can get a better job, maybe. You can, you can fix your relationship problems, maybe. But you have nothing that solves the, your real problems. And so, so we see this. And so God sends, he, for, he prophesies, right? In Isaiah 53, he's going to send Jesus. And then we see that he actually succeeds, right? Like, he actually succeeds. When we say Jesus is risen, that's not just like a historical fact. I mean, it is. 
but it's, it's more than that. It, it, there's implications. It means something more. And if you go to 53, verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. If you read the King James Version, that I'm risking something here. If you read the King James Version, that word spoil is actually booty, like pirate's booty, okay? Okay? Um, it's good, it's good. Um, yeah, oh, man, I was going to get by. I mean, it's success. That's what he's saying. He's like, he's going to divide the spoil with everybody, right? Like, like there is a success that is going to happen. There is a victory that is going to happen. This cross declares that there is a victory. God prophesied 700 years prior that Jesus was going to be victorious. Okay, look at what it says in verse 8. We're going to read verses 8 and 9, actually. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living. What does that mean? Dead. (laughs) Cut off from the land of the living. That means he was considered dead. Stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So what's what's the plan? What's God's victory plan what's his war strategy against satan sin and death to die that was his solution his solution was to come onto the scene in a way that is that that nobody would esteem him as of any regard nobody would consider him somebody that is is of any worth and then he's going to die that's that's god's that's god's plan i mean that that that's the new thing that's where God's going, no, we're going to go a different route here. I'm not going to split the seas. It's not going to be by power or success or strength. We're going to do this in an entirely different way. And what he says is that the grave does not hold him. He says that, in fact, he died, but he's going to conquer the grave. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Let me just stop there for a second. It wasn't an accident that Jesus died. Is that, are we, are we good with that assumption? Like God sent Jesus to come and die. Jesus gave up his throne in heaven to come and die. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is after he's died. He's going to see. God's going to prolong his days. Like he's going to come back to life. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You see, so the plan was for this, this Messiah to come and to die and to live again. Okay, so let's just start. Satan, sin, and death. We're going to go in reverse order as we solve these things. So how does God solve the death problem? Well, turns out he can beat death. You guys know, you guys know anybody else that can? Okay, so, but the, like seriously, he beat death. He himself personally died, right? Jesus died, rose himself from the grave, right? I mean, this is, 
for those of you who, you know, like, I, I, I kind of died a little bit, but, but seriously, like, that is not, I mean, this is really important, because that is nowhere on the same level of what we're talking about here, okay? So let's just not confuse these things, okay? I didn't raise myself from the grave. I was incapacitated in a bed, and, and Rebecca was, you know, shoving a bunch of poison and stuff in me that, that kept me alive, right? Like, I didn't do this on my own. I had a hospital that did it. Jesus rose himself from the grave. It's totally different, okay? And even when we hear these stories about people dying and coming back to life, not the same. Jesus rose himself from the grave. He conquered death. We know of nobody else that has ever conquered death on their own accord. He made the decision. He got up three days later. That, that's our God. And so when, because he lives, we can go, well, if, if God has the power over death, he can defeat death. And what does it say? That he's going to divide the spoil? What's the spoil? Life. Life, yeah. That, he, that he's going to give us life. That doesn't mean we're not going to die, but it means when we die, we're going to have eternal life with him. So that was the way to solve the death problem, okay? Not science, not, not the fountain of youth, right? You don't go to St. Augustine and go drink for the fountain of youth, right? Like, like it is God who can conquer death alone. And so we put our hope in God. And we go, because he lives, I believe I will live. Okay, so that's the first one. But why do we even die? There's a second point. Why do we even die? What happens in Genesis? What does God warn Adam and Eve when, they're, when he tells them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If you eat of it, you will die. If you rebel against me, if you sin, you will die. Death is an outcome of rebellion. It's an outcome of sin. And so God solves the sin problem. Look at what it says here in uh, uh, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, we have a sin problem. Our griefs, our transgressions, our iniquities, we've all, like sheep, we've gone astray, right? The Bible goes, goes, uses that metaphor all the time of us being sheep, right? Just dumb animals that just go in aimless directions. Does that define our lives pretty well, right? Like, we like to think that we've got some good strategy, but man, when those emotions get mixed up, man, we're, it's, we're a top on a table, and we go in any direction, we have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, that's the reality. And so, and so what does he do? The suffering servant is going to come, and he's going to take all of those sins upon him. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, it says all, a lot, all of our, 
all of our, all of our, right? Like, there's nothing out there that you've done or will do that God goes, not touching that. That's too bad. Let me just say that again. There is nothing that God will say, I'm not gonna forgive that. Nothing. So I don't care where you come from or what your background is. That's not how our God operates. That's not who God is. He himself was our sacrifice. You guys get this, right? Like, like God created humanity, and then he comes and he rescues us by what? By taking all of our sin and rebellion and enduring and absorbing the wrath of God that it deserves. That, what a God. What an incredible God we have. You know, as we've been going through Isaiah, we've been looking to see the characteristics of who God is and how he operates. If this isn't climactic, like this is it, right? Because I can't die for you. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't be of much worth because it's like we're, we're two like messy people, dirty people trying to clean each other up. We can't do anything. God was the only one who could take on our sins. It even talks about how he didn't, he didn't speak a word, right? He hadn't done anything wrong, right? Jesus didn't die on the cross, wasn't sacrificed on the cross because he was a rebel or because he had broken laws or because he was a, a, a bad character. If he was, then this wouldn't have worked. He was righteous, completely righteous. And so he solves the sin problem by taking on all of our sins. You see, a, a lot of times we, we, look at the, we look at the cross, we look at Jesus' path to the cross, we look at like the whippings and the beatings and all that. And I, and I think I've said this before up here. You know, people will say like, oh, that was the worst. And no. There, there's many humans that have gone through way more severe abuse. That, I, I don't, I don't, you can describe it as many times as you want. You can tell me about all the, the metal and the whips and the things. That's great. But, I mean, you can just take one POW in Vietnam, and I think, I think you're pretty much done with that analogy. So then why do we say that his sacrifice was of such significance? His death was of such significance? What does Jesus say on the cross? He says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, somehow there was some sort of perceived forsakenness between the father and his son. There was a separation that had never existed before in the history of certainly humanity, if not longer. That like the, the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, like all one Godhead, like all together and operating. We're not going to get into all of that and I like probably wouldn't do it justice in trying to explain it. But in that moment when Jesus is on the cross, there was a separation between him and the Father. We don't even understand what that would be like. We haven't experienced that. I know that God is somewhere up there and we're here but his grace actually, right? It says that the, the, his, the rain pours out on the wicked and the good, right? Like, like there is a common grace. Like God cares about all of humanity. He cares for us. 
We don't know what it looks like for him to actually turn his face entirely and go, you're, you're on your own. You, that's, that's the punishment. And yet, this is what Jesus felt. And this is what Jesus endured for us. And so that's the punishment. That's, that's what he does on our account. Now, I know at times we, we, we think that we're pretty good people. And we think, well, you know, nobody's heard my thoughts. Nobody really knows my emotions. Nobody's really hurt by my sin. So I'm not exactly convinced that I need a savior. I'm a pretty good person. From God's perspective, that's not the case. Because all of that is motivated by us pursuing our own lives. Pursue building our own kingdoms instead of him. Instead of, instead of putting our lives on the line and going, like, my life is yours, God. What do you want to do with it? You created it. You rescued it. You saved me. Okay, I'm here for you. But that's not what we do. We go, thank you very much. See ya. I'll get back to you later. Maybe when I'm like 40 or 50, 60, I don't have time for you right now, God, because I got other things to do in this life. You see, that, that's the rebellion. That's the rebellion that Jesus came and died for. And so, so what does he do? So Jesus goes on the cross, he dies, he takes the wrath that we deserved from God in order for him to maintain his justice. He absorbs that wrath and he takes that separation from God to do what? To bring us peace. So he solves, he solves the Satan problem, right? Or sorry, he solves the death problem. He solves the sin problem. He takes all of our sins. And then the last piece is he solves the Satan problem. How does the Satan problem come up in your life? So even when I say that, we kind of go, yeah. Is it Satan? Is it me? Is it, what is it? Is it the world? Is it, is it just, you know, like how, how do I know if it's really Satan? I don't know. <laughs> But here's what I will tell you. Satan tempts us. Satan distracts us. Satan shames us. If you've ever felt any of those three, that's the work of Satan. It doesn't make you guilty. It just means that that's where Satan is and that's how he's operating. So what does God do in conquering Satan in our lives? Because Satan's still around. Satan's still doing his thing. He's still trying to tempt us, trying to distract us, trying to keep us busy. If you've never read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I would highly encourage you to read it and just be completely convicted of like how Satan would operate, potentially. It's all kind of an uh, allegory. But. And so what he does is he's, he's tempting us, he's distracting us, and he's telling us, he's, he's putting shame on us, saying, man, God's never gonna forgive that. That's too far. Come here, just, just do this. Like, go do, you can go do charity. You can do good things. Just don't follow God. Just don't put him as an authority of your life. Don't hold scripture above your life and say, if it says it, then it's an authority in my life. Don't do that. Just try to live your own good life. You do you, right? We hear that every once in a while. 
And so what does he do? He draws near to us. In fact, when Jesus takes that separation, absorbs that separation, he actually brings us closer to the Father. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's what Jesus does. He declares you righteous. We've talked about this before, right? This great exchange where where Jesus takes our sin on himself and he gives us his righteousness. So when, when God looks at us, we are righteous in his sight because we've been forgiven of all of our sins, right? And so we are righteous. And so guess what else that does? He, he also uh, creates peace for us, right? We, we read this in, I, I lost my place here. Um, oh, in verse five, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with what? Not calm, not a tranquil water, not no conflict in your lives, brought us peace with God. That's what Jesus did. And so when he gives us his righteousness, he gives us peace. What does distraction, temptation, shame, those aren't, that's not peace, right? It's like the opposite of peace. Those are the things that are in our, in our brains as our minds are turning and swirling, doubting ourselves, questioning, always anxious and trying to figure out what. He gives us peace. When he gives us that righteousness, he gives us a relationship with our Father. He, he connects that. So instead of that separation that Jesus absorbed where the Father looks away from him, he actually draws in close to us. And it says, even in uh, verse 12, it says, he makes intercession for us. That means that God is so close to us, he's actually interceding for us. The Holy Spirit, right? We talk about this, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in us. God dwells with us in the rest of our lives. So if you're a believer here, if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you possess the Holy Spirit. So what's the power over Satan? The power over Satan is that the Holy Spirit speaks the truths that we need to hear in our own brains. So when we start going down the place of shame, the Holy Spirit goes, no, God loves you. He reminds us of scripture is what it says the Holy Spirit does. It says that the Holy Spirit comforts us. It says the Holy Spirit encourages us. He's our counselor. This is what God does for us. So what can Satan do? Nothing. Nothing. He has no power over us. Oh, there might be temptations, and there's certainly going to be distractions in our lives, but the Holy Spirit's going to go, should you be doing that? Think about it. Is that God's will for your life? And so this is what our God does. So when we look at this cross, he's declared victory over death, he's declared victory over sin, and he's declared victory over Satan. Satan, sin, and death. Like this is what he did. The world has nothing, no options, no solutions to these things. So this, the cross, signifies that. And it all started with what? That he defeated death. I'm not even going to turn over to the New Testament. (laughs) You can go read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read the story of Jesus rising from the grave. And you go, listen, it's there. And we can go through all sorts of apologetics to prove that it actually happened. But the question you need to ask yourself is, if it happened, 
What does that mean? If you're a Christian in here and you're going to go on your merry way and, you know, you did your Easter stamp and you did your thing, what does this mean for our lives practically? If Jesus actually conquered, if God is actually for us and defeated Satan's sin and death, what does that mean for your life? How does it change your life? Not just up here, but in how you live. You see, because the world, of all of those things, the world knows they're going to die. And they have no solutions to the temptation, distraction, and shame that Satan throws at you. And maybe that's your story. Maybe you know that all too well. But the world is trying to find a solution. And we've got it. God has communicated it to us. So what do we do? We go. We go and make disciples. We go and proclaim the truth. We go and tell them, this is good news. This is why we call it the gospel. This is why we call it good news. It is good news because God has succeeded. He has gained victory for us. Let me pray.